Lecture 24. Making the most of how we learn. We have had an amazing tour of learning over the past 23 lectures. So, how do we learn? We actively create meaning from our experiences. Then we alter the information we're learning to connect it to what we already know. Our learning depends on how we do it, where we do it, when we do it, with whom, and from what sources, and of course definitely on why we do it and who we are. I think that the definition we started with, learning as a change in a person's understanding, knowledge or abilities arising from the person's experience, holds up pretty well. Let's take just a few minutes to consider a couple frontiers of learning research, both the questions that seem unanswered in our past lectures and some of the exciting developments that didn't quite make it into our overview. Then, we'll try to pull together what we've learned with a special focus first on revisiting the myths we began with and second on using our new and more accurate understanding to optimize learning in everyday life. And finally, we'll end by considering what teachers and other educators can do to make best use of this understanding of how people learn. There are at least 3 frontiers of learning research that are very exciting for me, and as with many innovations in any area of science, they're all connected to emerging technologies that have opened new possibilities for researchers. Now, one of those frontiers is neuroscience, which deals with the way our brains enable us to learn and remember and pretty much do anything we do. Now, neuroscience as a field has a long and distinguished history, but technological developments in brain imaging and related research methods have led to an explosion in our ability to look at how the brain does its thing, including learn. So, how are neuroscientists changing our understanding of learning? Well, Neuroscience is showing us more and more that the brain is both highly integrated and highly plastic, and this radically changes what we know about learning. What integrated means is that we use all our brains all the time, and this is important for thinking about learning. For one, it tells us there isn't unused potential in the brain. There aren't these dusty corridors of neurons that never get used. And for another, it makes it less surprising that system 1 learning, like when we track the statistical properties of a speech stream, can help system 2 actions like when we have to decide whether something sounds like a word or not. And it's helping us to understand how the brain enables system 1 and system 2 processes, which areas of the brain are involved in those two processes and how the brain enables the two systems to interact. The plasticity of the brain refers to the fact that the brain is extremely malleable and extremely flexible. When there's damage to one part of the brain, other parts of the brain can be recruited to fill in. And that's different than what people once thought, which was that functioning was really tied to one region and damage to that region of the brain would forever destroy the function that was identified with that region. And the brain is always changing in response to new experiences. It's always adapting. So that plasticity is a source of major optimism about what's possible for us as lifelong learners. Recall the myth that old dogs don't learn new tricks? Well, not only do old dogs learn new tricks, their brain enables them to do that. In fact, they may be doing it with brand new neurons. Learning is not the sole province of the young, even for something like a second language. 
Now, another frontier area involves the rise of virtual reality and high-fidelity simulators. And for many of us, including all of the video gamers in my life, virtual reality is really a new frontier for entertainment because these kinds of simulators take playing to a new level of reality. And if you've ever played with a Wii or a Kinect or any of their emerging market rivals, you know how vivid that simulated experience can be. You can be sparring in a simulated boxing ring and find yourself ducking a punch or you can be serving in tennis, and in virtual reality, I really can serve a tennis ball. Entertainment uses aside, though, virtual reality also offers us the possibility for new ways of approaching learning. And some of the most interesting examples of this, from my view, are in medicine. Because in medicine, book training and videos can only take people so far, and eventually, doctors have to learn on us. And that's really scary, because we know that learning something like a surgical procedure takes a lot of repetition, and probably will involve mistakes. But virtual reality gives us a way to train doctors and nurses on virtual patients in ways that come very close to real experience, and this is something many medical schools are already actively doing. The way it works is that doctors and nurses operate on a patient simulator. And this consists of a kind of doll that looks and responds much like a real person. And a sophisticated computer program generates that simulated doll's responses. So that computer can be programmed to mimic various operating room scenarios like adverse drug reactions, shock, and so on. And this lets doctors and nurses practice a procedure without putting a real person in harm's way. And virtual reality allows us to train doctors on more than just how to do a procedure. It also opens up possibilities for looking at how doctors cope with and could learn from mistakes. Virtual reality is also used to train pilots in aviation and drivers for commercial transportation. Just as in the medical school situation, simulators allow people to practice tasks like takeoff and landing or navigation under difficult driving conditions in ways that don't place other people at risk. Virtual reality and high-fidelity simulators are also important tools for studying learning in the laboratory. They're allowing cutting-edge investigations into things like how visual perspective changes our models of space and how our perceptual and motor systems adapt to changing environmental conditions. I've actually always wondered what it would feel like to walk if I were actually tall, and my colleagues in this area actually tell me that they might be able to let me try it out soon, again, using virtual reality And you could say if architects made use of virtual reality in design, they might stop making buildings that none of us can navigate. But it might be that aesthetics always trump utility for some domains. Now, the last frontier is also one that, like virtual reality, involves using computers. But in this case, rather than have computers simulate the learning situation, be a patient or be a traffic situation, computers are used to simulate the learner in ways that can help researchers test ideas about how people learn. So if I think we learn categories by memorizing examples and associating them to a category, I can program a computer to learn in this way, and I can see if its behavior, how long it takes to learn, how well it can classify new examples, and the kinds of mistakes that it makes, I can see if those look a lot like human behaviors when human beings are learning categories. If the computer's behaviors don't match what humans do, it suggests that the theory of category learning I've programmed that computer with is probably not accurate in accounting 
for how humans learn categories. These are really going to be interesting areas to watch. But in this course, we've also covered some fundamentals, which I think aren't going to change. And I want to take a few minutes now to think about those. And as we do so, let's reconsider some of the myths that we started with in this course. Remember the myth that we always know when we're learning and that we learn intentionally? Well, as you now know, this myth comes from the fact that we often overemphasize that rational, deliberate, conscious set of processes in learning. The processes where we sit down and we actively look at the material we're trying to learn. Now, in overemphasizing those System 2 processes, we often fail to capitalize on System 1's potential to help us learn. And note that those relatively non-conscious systems, those System 1 processes, they don't even always need feedback about whether they are getting it right. It never occurred to me until I prepared this course that just playing books in the language you're trying to learn in the background without listening to them might help you learn rhythms and grammar rules in that language without expending as much effort and without getting feedback on whether we are right or wrong. But doing that probably will help us, and that may be another reason why immersion is so helpful for second language learning. Now recall that in the beginning of the course, I asked you to imagine that you were a refugee from sub-Saharan Africa, a former subsistence farmer. And I asked you to imagine arriving in the United States to start a new life and to learn a new language. Although it's overwhelming, the immersion in an English language world is likely to help you more quickly acquire a basic functional sense of words and rhythms in English. In a kind of funny way, your task is easier than if you were a middle-class American trying to learn Italian for an upcoming vacation tour of Venice, because in that case, you're probably learning from tapes in a setting where nothing but English is being spoken. Another myth with which we began was the idea that prior knowledge doesn't matter for how we learn. And I'm going to repeat myself. There's no tabula rasa in learning. So how do we make use of this knowledge that prior knowledge, prior learning, plays an important role in learning? Well, it can be particularly useful to enter new learning situations with an eye to what you already know and how it can be used to help you. And it's also worth knowing when prior knowledge may make your life more difficult. For example, learning to type if you already play the piano is made easier because some of the finger movements involved are going to draw on similar, already automated motor patterns. And learning to play one racket sport can capitalize on another that you've already acquired. One clever undergraduate that I once had in a class pointed out that websites, which are organized like a print newspaper, are easier to navigate because they let people draw on long-practiced knowledge, although this may, be, this may be changing as our culture shifts away from print media. Now, on the other hand, prior knowledge can also hurt us. Now, this is true in some ways for switching between, say, racquetball and tennis because although they have similar motor patterns, there are also some distinct elements of those sports but it's perhaps most clear in learning a second language. Whether you're a refugee or a tourist, your native language is a kind of prior knowledge that may get in your way. Now, remember we discussed that often you have to suppress words from your first language in order to get to the words you need in a second language. And when it comes to inhibiting our native language, if we're in our home country while we're learning, we're going to have a hard time doing that. 
if, as refugees, we're in a place where most people don't speak our language at all, that inhibition task actually just got a little easier. But it's important to know prior knowledge in the form of literacy in one language is a different matter. If you were literate prior to migrating to a new country, you can also make use of print materials to enhance your learning of that new language. Now, we also talked about the idea that you have to be interested in order to learn, that interest comes first and learning second. But you now know that actually having a little competence can enhance interest. So in other words, if we can struggle through the initial phases of learning something, we may be in a better position to find it interesting. Now, this is especially important when we have to learn something rather than chose it freely, because as you also know, feeling that you have to learn something is going to violate your need for autonomy, and it's a little bit unmotivating. So if you have to learn a language because, say, your spouse wants to learn the language and travel, or because you're a refugee and there are no other options, here are some ways to use what you know about motivation. Well, first, you can just be reassured that you will like learning the language more after a basic foundation of ability within it. You can also try to craft learning situations that help you learn the language while feeding your other interests. My own learning of German skyrocketed when I found a class where we discussed academic topics, like the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, with absolutely atrocious beginner-level German. I so desperately wanted to be able to express my thoughts about that book. I was willing to work at it with my minimal skills. So doing this, crafting learning situations that do feed your interests, helps to return some autonomy to the experience and ought to improve your motivation that way as well. Now, another myth related to motivation and learning is the notion that we always feel clear and confident when we are learning well. But now you know better. You know that sometimes, before we get to the next level, our performance is full of variability. Now, we looked at that issue briefly when we talked about math strategies and how kids acquire those. But here's another illustration of it in a very different domain. My five-year-old daughter is learning to play the violin. Some days she plays very well, and other days, no matter how long practice drags on, she sounds awful. In the absence of invoking that knowledge about variability, you might conclude the bad practice days are not good. In fact, maybe you might think they're even harmful, because clearly she's not practicing the correct ways to play the pieces on those days. But here's the thing. Knowing how math learning proceeds means... What might be happening with my daughter is an increase in the variability of her playing before she acquires a new level of skill or becomes able to play a new piece. And the same applies to all of us when we are learning. A bad practice day or a lot of mistakes are sometimes a kind of storm before the calm of a new level of skill. For language learning, this translates directly into mistakes and grammar awfulness or accent horrors, perhaps right before you get to a new level of proficiency. And knowing this can really help people through more difficult moments in language acquisition. You can know that when things seem awful and aren't going well, you may need to just stick with it a little bit longer to get through this hurdle and onto that next level. Now, another set of myths we discussed was the idea that smart people know how to learn, and we know when we're learning well versus when learning is not going well. And you now know about the elements of effective rehearsal. Now, some of those are probably not surprising. You know you need to use elaborative encoding, linking what you are learning to things you already know. 
We also discuss the need to space your rehearsals, including taking breaks. And you know that sleep is a very effective kind of break to take because it's so fundamental to helping us consolidate and hold on to what we've learned. And you know that you need to make your rehearsals variable in many cases because that way you can use what you're learning in a wider variety of circumstances. But you also now know some of the mistakes people make when they choose strategies for rehearsal. For example, you know that effective rehearsal involves both what we know and also what we're still working on learning. So what you stop practicing, you're going to risk forgetting. If you're learning a second language, you have to practice both the words you already know and the words you're trying to acquire. Perhaps most importantly, and perhaps most difficult to do, you now know that good rehearsals sometimes mean testing yourself. Now, for motor learning and spatial learning, we naturally test ourselves as we practice in most cases. You can't learn to play the piano without, well, playing the piano. And our refugee can't learn to drive a car without actually driving the car. You won't learn to get from the house to the office without actually doing it, because even studying it on a map isn't sufficient, and it definitely won't help you avoid new construction kinds of delays. But in other cases, we sometimes don't test ourselves as much as would be ideal. If you are a refugee, you have to use your new language, which is a kind of test, because you can't communicate without it. But if you are working on Italian with your spouse in your living room, well, you can quite easily read through vocabulary words without forcing yourself to try to talk. So in that second case, you're actually going to have to work pretty hard to force yourself into testing your knowledge. And it's not easy. My husband is a native speaker of German. But his English was so much better than my German when we met that we've never spoken German to one another. And that's because when we converse, we humans want to communicate as fully as possible, maybe particularly with our mates. And that means we go with the language that's going to maximize communication at the expense of the language we might be trying to learn. Now, my secretary, when he was learning Italian, had what I still think is a really clever way to get around this problem. He and another person in our department decided to translate the book Charlotte's Web from English into Italian. It let them work together. They're both very social people. That was a lot of fun for them. It forced them to fully use their fledgling Italian. And because it's a children's book, the Italian wasn't too complicated to do. It also got them around the awkwardness of trying to have a difficult, effortful, and unsatisfying conversation with someone where, you know, if you just switched to English, you'd enjoy it so much more. Now, we're all social creatures, as a matter of fact. And that brings me to my next point. Through all of this course, we have not focused on the role of other people, teachers and coaches and parents and friends, in helping learning in any direct way. And I'd like to end by thinking about the roles that other people play in our learning and how those roles relate to the things we've discussed in this course. Knowing what we now know about learning, we can think a bit more about how teaching can support or undermine learning. So one thing we know now is teaching needs to be attentive to the way learning is affected by prior knowledge. Some of the most effective teachers I know are effective because they have a very clear sense of what students usually think at the beginning of a class, and they know how they can change that model towards one that's more consistent with the available knowledge in a field. 
teaching also needs to be attentive to the constructive nature of learning, to the way that we create learning out of the information we encounter. But there are some debates about what that would mean. For example, one way of thinking about that is to point towards discovery-based learning or inquiry-based learning. And as we saw earlier in this course, that's not always the best option for learners. Lectures, actually, while they are widely bashed as bad and unengaging, turn out to really be pretty efficient ways of helping people learn. Now, guided discovery learning looked really great for adolescents and particularly adults in several studies. And here, I want to go back to this idea of scaffolding. Now, scaffolding is what happens when a more experienced person guides a novice person through some activity or through a field of knowledge And we saw scaffolding in this course in the context of learning to tell stories. It's very evident in that context. What you see in parents' scaffolding of kids' stories is that parents build in a structure for the story that tacitly communicates what should go in a story and where. But parents do this structuring in a way that leaves openings for the child to participate actively. They might structure the child's narrative in time and content, but they get the child to produce the content in response to their questions. So good scaffolding, then, is a kind of teaching that takes into account the person's existing skills and existing knowledge, and it creates opportunities for them to be active in their learning. Now, teaching also needs to take into account metacognition, which is what learners know about learning. And it is clear to me, as a college educator, that we seldom teach metacognition in our schools. Often, metacognition is not an explicit part of any teaching. Now, to think about this further, let's think about just strategic information, like the sort we outlined earlier, about how to rehearse when we're trying to learn, and what kinds of practice and rehearsals are most effective. So you know now that self-testing is very important in acquiring new information and retaining it. College students, as it happens, don't know this. In fact, a recent survey of students showed that they don't report using self-testing as a study strategy, and they don't even really always endorse it as effective. And this is in huge contrast to the findings that show just how effective self-testing is as a learning strategy. Now I'm going to make a confession here. I admit with some embarrassment, it's very seldom that I explicitly tell my students how they can improve their learning. Rather, I conduct review sessions in my courses where I model the behavior of self-testing. Let me give you an example. In my research methods course, I hold regular review sessions in class just prior to the exam. These usually take place about two to four days prior to the test. When students come into the review session, I say to them, please pull out a sheet of blank paper. In the next five minutes, I want you to write down everything you've learned over the past several weeks. They look at me with horror. They're hoping that I'm going to say, just joking. But I'm not. I wait for five and sometimes even seven extraordinarily painful seconds. After a minute or so, they realize I'm serious and they start writing. And I give them about five minutes and then I ask them to start telling me what they've written down. And I put the items up on a whiteboard and draw lines and organize things. And when, when we finish, we've usually managed to place on the board all the material that was covered and in the process to review how the material is related. Until this year, I sort of assumed that students would get that this was modeling how they might study at home um, or 
more precisely, I hadn't really thought that much about it at all. And here's why I was wrong. For students to get the modeling of how to review, for them to get that I was showing them how to study, would require them to engage that system to deliberate reflective processing, but to engage it not about the content of what we were reviewing. And remember, that's what they're interested in. Their goal is to pass the test. Rather, they would have to engage system two processing about the process by which I was taking them through the review. And of course, they weren't thinking about the process. They were worried about the content. The upshot of this is that teachers could help more. So this year, I'll be pointing their attention specifically, not just to what we're reviewing, but also to the process by which we're reviewing it. And I'll also be making them read a few articles on study strategies, including self-testing. Now, self-testing is just one example of one part of metacognition, strategy knowledge. And it seems to me more broadly that we may need to think harder about how teaching in various settings can incorporate information about metacognition to help students learn more effectively. Now finally, good teaching also needs to be sensitive to motivational aspects of learning. And there are many reasons to believe that teaching situations vary in their capacity to do this effectively. Consider motivation. In many cases, we initiate learning. I decided to take a German course while working in Germany, and you've all decided to take this class from the great courses. And we know that that element of choice and autonomy is highly motivating for people. In other cases, however, we're taught because we're required to learn something. We're doing training for our jobs or we're attending school. And in the school case, teachers often create external rewards for kids, which might range from things like praise and being the student of the week to, at least in my son's school, candy and soda rewards for good behavior and good academic work. But everything we know about motivation from this course suggests that those kinds of rewards are risky. And they might further undermine motivation. They might make learning in those contexts, in those school contexts, feel coerced and externally controlled. Learning is best when it's its own reward. Achieving a level of competence is a really great thing, and we ought to recognize that as such and not confuse the issue with things like soda and candy. And we do need to ask why we have so many schools that function in this way, that undermine kids' motivation to learn. And we need to ask what the alternatives might look like. Montessori schools, for example, provide children with no incentives to learn other than their own and their teacher's pleasure in their developing competence. And there are likely to be other ways teachers can motivate kids intelligently and effectively. And many teachers work really hard to do that, and we should recognize and support them in those efforts. Now, I'm an optimist. I think our motivation to learn is so basic to who we are as a species that I think it's resilient to, or at least we can recover it from, setbacks like a coercive school setting. And in fact, one of the bigger messages from this course is that we can all learn at any age. Learning is a kind of human birthright. It's one of the most amazing things about us. Everything about human beings is built for lifelong learning, from our extended, unusually long childhood and our large prefrontal cortices, to our interest in novelty and challenge, as long as we feel safe enough to explore. I think this capacity for learning is also a reason for being optimistic about the future of humanity as well. There's an awful lot we need to learn at this point in our history. 
in order to avert the kinds of difficulties that we're facing as a species. In closing, I hope you've enjoyed this tour of how we learn. It's something of a cliche, but in the process of developing the course, I have also learned a great deal, from learning some areas of research that I didn't previously know very well, to some basic gross motor skills, like how to walk around in a TV studio without looking like a rat in a maze full of shocking devices. I'd like to thank you for your attention, your engagement, and maybe your elaborative encoding. And as a certain Vulcan might have once said, learn well and prosper.